Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. Word of God, Matthew 17, verses 24 through 27. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? When they came to Capernaum, those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax? From their sons or from strangers? When Peter said from strangers, Jesus said to him, then the sons are exempt. However, so that we do not offend them, go to the sea, throw in a hook, take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for you and for me. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. <clears throat> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word and it's glorious in what it reveals, but of course, we must have ears to hear, otherwise it's just mere words, and I must have the Holy Spirit so that I am not just speaking words, Father, but so that there is power in your word, in our reception of it, Father, because we know your word is powerful, so we need the power, and so that there is conviction, Father, as we listen to it. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. I find my path to getting through Matthew by the end of this year clogged. <laughs> uh, and it's clogged by passages like this. Passages that are small, just a few verses. What is this? Four verses. A few verses, but what do you say, Rich? I mean, that's kind of a... I don't want to call the word of God rich. It's as though I can compliment God. I, you know? There's a danger in saying God is good. And the danger is not that God is not good. But it's like the people who said to Jesus, good teacher. It's like we can judge what is good. Like we have some independent means of judging goodness. God is. And therefore we know what is good. But when we say God is good, it's like we can speak about it. So this passage, it's the word of God. I mean, that's the best thing that can be said about it. It's the word of God, but it's full of stuff. And for that reason, it's kind of hard to, to, to lay it aside and go on to something else or to include it with another passage. And I'm finding that as, I, as I'm looking through the coming weeks and trying to make it through the year that there are many, many passages like this. We're still... We're still 10 chapters from the end of Matthew, and they are rich chapters, so I would like to make it through, but the path is clogged. And there are um, a lot of ways of dividing Jesus' miracles into types, basic types. There are those who, and this is maybe the most prominent way of speaking of it, those who say that Jesus does miracles of supply, of healing, of life of nature, commands nature, uh, raises those who have been dead, 
supply, fish from fish, you know, healing. Um, that's self-explanatory. Others see seven basic types, feedings, castings out, healings, control of nature, and then they have a couple that they can't categorize. And so being inconsistent taxonomists, they say, and then there's water to wine, large catches of fish, and raising the dead. And uh, the feedings, the water to wine, the, uh, the large catches of fish just sort of, they're thrown in there because they don't know how to categorize them. I would suggest as my own taxonomy, there's a good word, isn't it? Taxonomy, it means to divide into categories. I would suggest as my divisions, trying to fit all Christ's miracles into as few categories as possible, that there are four divisions, and I made them a little elastic so that they can spread out like we like to do on our seats here and take two seats when we only need one. And, uh, and these divisions are, there are miracles that involve people. <laughs> and you go, duh, <laughs> That's, that can fit everything. Well, in that I include basically healings, all right? The things he does with people. And those are healings that involve sight, hearing, speech, leprosy, bleeding, paralysis, crippling disorders, epilepsy, all these kinds of things. So people. He does miracles on people. Then I say he does miracles that involve satanic power, Satan. Spiritual oppression. And so he casts out demons. Insanity, lunacy, raging, raving. Uh, mad men apparently calmed by Jesus casting demons out of them. So there are people. There is Satan. And of course, really, I think Martin Luther is correct when he says behind every sneeze lies a demon. And Satan has control over things in this world in ways that God has given him that involve physical circumstances. And so this is not a hard and fast division, but this one that spiritual oppression or working with Satan is when Satan is right there in front of you, all right? When Satan is very visible in what he's doing and not hidden behind natural phenomenon or, or behind illness, that kind of thing. So people, Satan things, and this one would be uh, his transmutation of physical elements, taking things and changing them. So he does water into wine. He multiplies the loaves and fishes on a number of occasions, this kind of thing, working with things. Then nature, and of course nature can control also, I'm actually meaning elemental powers. Jesus dealing with the vast power of nature and its elemental power. So he stills the storm. And in this one I'd put raising the dead because I think that's a natural part of this world that God has made. And so I, but that could be under people as well. But I'd say the raising of the dead is turning back the clock and reversing. It's like the things that God did in the Old Testament when he caused time to, to stand still or the clock to go back. <clears throat> 
stilling storms, the death of the fig tree, the great catches of fish. <coughs> Interestingly, one of the ones that we don't count and that is hard to fit in any other way is that we're told that when he was with his disciples in the boat, when he came walking on the water to them, and Peter walked on the water, he got in the boat, and it says after the Peter walking on the water and falling and the challenge and the rebuke, it says that the, the boat was immediately at shore. And so you, you seem to have like a Star Trek kind of effect with the, what's it called in Star Trek? Come on, guys. What? Demon? Oh, beaming. Yes, that's right. Beaming. Being beamed somewhere. Now, it may seem to you that I've shoehorned some of these miracles into their categories. Beaming. Thank you. I'm beaming at you for that. Thank you. I would, um, I would defend these but not real hard. You know, what do I care? <laughs> I'm just another guy who's tried it. But what I want to point out to you is the uniqueness of the miracle that we find in our passage this morning. So if we have Satan, bodies, people, we have transmutation of elements, if we have, you know, the, um, I'm 62. I'm not ashamed. Things, things. No, that's transmutation. Nature. And then we have this one, which is very hard to categorize. It's kind of, to use another big word, sui generis. It stands alone. It's not in any other category. It is unique, this miracle. It's a weird miracle in a bunch of ways. Brazenly unique. It's brazenly strange. It is a fish story. And so in that way, it might fit with the control of natural elements. But it's not just a fish story, is it? There's a coin in the mouth of the fish. <clears throat> now, that might also be a control of natural elements if God had caused that fish to find that coin years before, and then it's brought up, and Peter slices it open, as fishermen do, takes out its stomach, and there's a coin. But that coin, which is a valuable coin, is in the mouth of the fish, right? Which means that it just got there, right? It hasn't been spat out. It hasn't been swallowed. It's right there in the mouth of the fish. And that's a weird miracle, isn't it? Because did he create the coin? Did the coin come filtering down through the water, drop by a boat, the, the fish goes swimming, Catches it in its mouth, doesn't even have time to swallow it. It takes a hook that Peter's thrown out. You know, you, do you see the confluence of things that are, that are each in themselves kind of miraculous and yet coming together to make this a really unique miracle, a brazenly, because I say brazen, not that these elements themselves are in your face or anything like that, but something's coming that is. So there is the uniqueness of the complexity um, and the timing and, and the fish being there and the coin being in the fish, but there is much more than this, this physical nature of the act that stands out here because while it's unique as a miracle, 
in its miraculous aspects, the things that defy what we would call natural law, which is how we generally attempt to define miracles, although miracles do not need to always defy natural law. You understand it's possible for a fish to swallow a coin, but it's a matter of timing often that makes it a miracle. So we have these natural laws that appear to be kind of broken by this miracle, and there are a number of them, but it's unique in further ways than that remarkable physical act that Jesus commands. It's even more unusual in that this miracle is maybe with the parable of the fig tree alone and unique in that it doesn't fill anyone's real need. It's not addressing a need. God made food for the hungry. The Son of God raised the widow's son. The Son of God, God himself, gave healing to the ill. When he comes, he will set the captives free, and that's from illness is one of the ways we see it happening. The prophecy, he set captives free, that Satan has held them captive is very clearly tied to a, a miracle of Christ's healing. And so we know that Satan has power over our bodies and that Christ came to set us free from, not just from the illness, but the satanic work that's being done. We have um, many who are demon-possessed, who are relieved of the influence of the demons. We have, for the sake of his mother and for the sake of the wedding guests at the wedding in Cana, we have the the water that's turned to wine, preserving a party, but it's still meeting a need. And you might think that there's a pressing need here, but there isn't. There is no great pressing need. No one is helped by this miracle in a way that could only be done by a miracle. Miracles come as items of last resort when you've tried all the doctors, you've tried all the prescriptions, you've tried everything you can. You've tried to chain the demoniac in the grave so he can't get free, and you're at the end of your wits. That's when a miracle comes from Jesus, when there's a need and it's deep, when there's no other way to be, for it to be resolved, people turn to Jesus for a miracle, but that's, that's not the case this time. This miracle comes with Jesus having a a treasurer who's Judas Iscariot. We know that they have money. We know that Jesus was supported by, we're told at one point, by wealthy women. Um, There's even the question of whether these people would have come after him for the tax, but this seems almost a voluntary act by Jesus. Yes, let's do it. Now, that's one of the unique things about the way this takes place, but even stranger This miracle of all the miracles in Scripture is unique. And I'm not just speaking of Christ's life in that what is done involves money, wealth. The very thing that Jesus has been very clearly warning his disciples that they should not live for, that they should not seek from God, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you. It is, it's kind of paradoxical that in this miracle, Jesus creates money for a disciple. Now there's the miracle with Elijah and the widow's cruise, but 
and she sold it for money. But this is just straight out money. There's a coin involved. And so that as well makes it an unusual miracle. There's no great need. It involves money. Third, and perhaps most unusual. Jesus, with this miracle, is the primary beneficiary, it would appear. He makes money to pay his debt. You understand? What what takes place here seems, in fact, not very far removed from Satan's second temptation of Christ who challenged him to prove who he was by throwing himself down off the temple so that the angels would be forced to keep him from falling to his death. This is a miracle that is an attestation miracle. It's a proving miracle. It proves something. It's unique in that. Now, all of Jesus' miracles were signs, every one of them, but there is no miracle that Jesus Jesus did that is more transparently and obviously a proof miracle about his character and nature than this one. And he does it for himself, but not just himself. He does it for himself to prove something to Peter. Now the reason for this miracle, to understand this event, we need to recognize that every miracle combines action and teaching. No miracle is simply on its own. When the blind are having their eyes opened, it is a symbol of the spiritual reality that we are blind. When the deaf hear, it's a symbol and a teaching that we need God to open our ears so that we can hear God's word and profit from it. When the demons are cast out, it's a teaching about the power of of Jesus to overcome demons, okay? Every, Every miracle has an active purpose in the physical thing that's done and a a didactic teaching purpose. And the teaching is actually more important than the helping because there's going to come a day when these miracles don't go on, but the teaching that they gave is going to live on and it's going to influence us. Earlier, Matthew told of a group of men who lowered a paralyzed friend through a roof to get him to Jesus. Jesus sees their faith as they lower this man through the roof. He's in a room. He's so crowded no one can get in. So they tear away the tiles on the roof. They lower the friend down. Guy comes right before Jesus. Jesus says to him, son, your sins are forgiven, causing sort of consternation in the room. Jesus knows there are Pharisees in the room who are saying, only God has the right to forgive sins. Who is this man to forgive sins? Who does he think he is? So Jesus, we're told, knowing their thoughts, looks at them and says, which is more difficult to say, Son, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. Well, it's easier to say, son, your sins are forgiven, because it doesn't require proof, does it? That's what his question implies. Oh, it's very easy to say. I go to churches, and people take communion, and the priest says, your sins are forgiven. And I go, you know, that's an easy statement. That's a very easy statement, but prove it. Well, then Jesus says, but that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he turns to the guy on the mat, and he says, take up your mat and walk. 
And he got up and he took his mat and he walked. And everyone in that room knew that Jesus had the power to forgive sins. Understand there's a deeper didactic teaching purpose to the miracle than the very miracle. He has the power to forgive sins. So what is taught in this miracle? What things are revealed? And as I've said, I don't think there's any miracle by Jesus that contains more significant teaching for us, at least today. And I think maybe, at least for us today than this one. It is a great miracle. Not in the fish, not in the coin, but in the lesson it drives home. Note as well that this is an unusual miracle and it seems to have only one witness. It's a sign for one man, for Peter, for the rock, for the man that Jesus is constantly engaging with, his foil in a sense, the man of faith whose faith is weak but who is such a great man, the rock, Peter, the man, Peter. This is a Peter, a Petrine miracle exclusively for Peter. We wouldn't know about it unless Peter later recounted these events. So, what is the reason? Well, the events of this passage are set in motion by a question posed to Peter outside the house where Jesus is by collectors of the temple tax in the village of Capernaum where they've gone following the transfiguration. The series of events where Peter is at the center. Peter is at the center of an awful lot in these chapters. The walking on the water, the transfiguration... You just go through these chapters and you see Peter, 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 all right? Peter rebuking Jesus saying, you shall not surely die. Peter being asked by these tax collectors, does your master not pay the two drachma tax? Now that tax, that two drachma tax is called the temple tax and it's the descendant of a tax instituted by Moses, which was the duty of every Israelite, every male Israelite over the age of 20. It's called a poll tax because everyone pays the exact same amount. It's not, a, it's not a progressive tax where we say to you, oh, you don't make that much, you pay only this amount. It is a straight-up poll tax. No one pays more, no one pays less. And it really reveals the inherent dignity of mankind that no one comes to God's temple without paying the exact same amount. Everyone is equal before him. Two drachmas were equivalent to two days' wage, equivalent to two denarii. This tax that's written of in Exodus 30 was originally half a Jewish shekel. Two drachmas are equivalent to half a shekel. So when they pull out the fish and find a shekel, that's enough for two people. It's four drachmas. Two drachmas are equivalent to two days' wage, um, and a day's wage, I, I, you know, how do you figure a day's wage? Well, if you think of the average male income in the United States today, the amount that they would make in two days would be somewhere between $300 and $500. And so this four drachma coin needed to pay for two men, okay? So double the 300 to 500, 400 to 500 would be somewhere between 600 and $1,000, this coin, the value. You can adjust it up or down. Comparisons are obviously inexact, but in the end, the value of that coin in that fish's mouth was about enough to pay for the needs of an average family for a week. <clears throat> That's the amount of tax for two men. 
But don't think this is just a simple story of Jesus creating money from thin air for some kind of need. When the men ask Peter if his master pays the tax, what does he do? My immediately response, yes. Peter thinks he's answered well. This is, again, Peter being Peter. Peter is willing to take the bull by the horns and say, Jesus, you shall not die. Jesus, should we make tabernacles here on the Mount of Transfiguration for you and Moses and Elijah? Jesus, tell me to come to you. Jesus, and here he is, he's, he's addressing Jesus. Now, he's not addressing Jesus, but he's addressing these men in response for Jesus. And he says, yes, yes, my master pays the temple tax. He does that. That would seem to be the extent of it. Peter affirms, oh yeah, Jesus pays taxes to the temple. But then we read, Peter goes into the house, Jesus is in the house, and in verse 25, Jesus speaks to him. And verse 25 makes it very clear, and I tried to emphasize this when I was reading it, that Jesus speaks to Peter first. In other words, Peter doesn't say anything. Peter just goes into the house. Jesus looks to him and says to him, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax? From their sons or from strangers? So it's obvious Jesus knows about the question that was posed to Peter and the answer that Peter gave. Perhaps there was some underlying confrontation between Peter and these men, but he knows Peter's answer. He, yeah, we don't have the full background, but he knows what Peter has said. Peter had rather blithely answered for Jesus, yes, 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 he pays that tax when the tax collectors question him, but Jesus is not happy. He does not accept the answer that Peter so blithely gave. And so he turns to Peter. Peter comes in and says, Peter, a question for you. Tell me, who do the kings of the earth tax? Their sons or strangers? Well, Peter knows the answer to that. Kings don't tax their own sons. So he says, well, from strangers. The kings of the earth, they tax strangers. They don't tax their sons. Now, Peter answered for Jesus in a way that he thought was right. He assumed that he was doing credit to Jesus by this. He brought on Jesus an obligation. He answered in accord with what he thought was wise and best. And no doubt, he considered that the end of the matter. Of course, Jesus pays the tax. Jesus is Jewish. Jesus is a man. Jesus is over 20 years of age. He pays the tax. It's a no-brainer to Peter. But to Jesus, it is presumptuous irreverence. And my dear friends, let me say to you that your and my lives are filled with presumptuous irreverence when we think we can answer for Christ in any other way than he speaks in his word. Now, we want to say, poor Peter. I mean, poor Peter. Poor Peter. But remember that Peter had been asked, along with the rest of the disciples, but Peter answered, who do men say that I am? 
disciples had said, well, some say Elijah, some say this, and John the Baptist come back from the dead. And Jesus says, but to who do you say that I am? Peter alone of all the disciples had said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter had said that. And now because he thinks it right when these tax collectors ask him, he says, sure, my master pays this tax. And Jesus says to him, oh, Peter, you just don't get it. This is my father's house. In my father's house. It's not someone else's house. It's my house. Do the kings of the earth tax their sons? I am the son of God. I am God. Who do you think you are to answer for me? To lay on me an obligation that I will not accept. To speak for me in an area where I have not spoken to you. And where any wise man thinking about it would hold his tongue. To obligate me to pay to my father a tax for my house, Peter, is folly. We have to understand that the disciples were sinful men and they sinned and sinned like you and me day and night, sins upon sins. If we're honest about ourselves, we just sin and sin and sin. Sometimes I marvel at how many sins I commit during a worship service in my mind. These are sinful men, and Jesus knows their sins. And very rarely in the Gospels do we find Jesus calling them out for their sins. Sometimes when it's presumptuous, especially pride, and here's a point, fathers especially, when you see pride in your children, be like Jesus and say, absolutely not. That's the one sin we won't allow even an inch to. So Jesus deals with them when they're arguing about which of them will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. But there are thousands, hundreds of thousands of sins in these years that he doesn't address. Countless sins. Jesus doesn't mention them. He knew that Jesus, Judas stole from him Bible tells us this, but he never said anything. But on this occasion, Peter's sin becomes one of a very select few that are not overlooked by Jesus. Peter's casual assumption about Jesus calls forth this very stern rebuke. Now, there's blessing in God's rebukes, and this is a blessed thing for Peter, but it is as well exactly the same as his failure on the water when Jesus speaks to him and says it's exactly the same as exactly the same as the transfiguration when Peter is wanting to lump Jesus in with Moses and Elijah this is that kind of thing and now it's Jesus saying to Peter who do you think I am in the Mount of Transfiguration it was God the Father who said when Peter said let's make tabernacles places of worship tents of worship for each of you the father comes down in a cloud and says, 
this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Here Jesus is saying, I'm that one. Don't speak for me. Peter is bolder in declaring the glory of Jesus as the promised Messiah and Son of God than anyone else, but he's also bolder in his presumption with Jesus and forgetting that his master, Jesus, isn't really his, isn't his anything, but is the sole and glorious Son of the everlasting Father and the God of glory, the King of heaven, the Lord of hosts. So flooding into the mind of Peter, I hope, as he hears Jesus ask him whether the king's sons pay taxes, should be place after place. Not just what God said to him on the mountaintop when he said, let's make tabernacles, but place after place in the Old Testament that Peter knows full well. (coughs) Just one passage out of Isaiah. Peter should have this ringing in his mind, this prophecy of the Christ. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. For a child will be born to us. He knows this is Jesus. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, the Prince of Peace. There will be no end of the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom. To establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Jesus is the son of the most high. The zeal of the Lord of hosts is going to make him seen, to be sit on the throne of David, to be wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, a king whose kingdom will have no end. This is what Peter knows. This is what Peter has denied. So we say to ourselves, as we say it to Peter, don't speak casually of this Jesus, Peter, David, you. Don't speak casually of this Jesus. Don't presume on his behalf. You don't have that right. Don't try and define him in accord with your will or what you think he should be like. Don't try and figure out what you think Jesus would do. Don't let your, what you would define as your love for Jesus allow you to run away into vain imaginations because you love him. You love him and he's love and he loves you. Do you understand that the day in which we live is a day that has adopted evangelical terminology? Everywhere you go, the woke movements of the world, whether they're semi-legitimate or not, Okay. And I'd certainly include in semi-legitimate the ones on racial justice. But nevertheless, every single one of them is speaking in the terms of a revival preacher. Love wins. And you could hear that in a pulpit, couldn't you? They're taking our language about Jesus. And they're making it about their sin. Everywhere you go. The love of Jesus, the kindness of Jesus, the mercy, the grace. Don't be ashamed. Don't worry about your sin. This God of love, of mercy, of grace. And we go around and we we trot out this Jesus to the world. This Jesus who's all about our feelings about him rather than his word. 
You realize that in the Bible, there are many more words spoken in the Gospels about listening and hearing and obeying than there are about love. It's like three to one. Love follows obedience. It doesn't produce obedience. Obedience produces love, not vice versa. Just one of many examples, the rich young ruler, who we're going to read about in a few chapters, comes to Jesus. And he loves Jesus, right? He thinks very highly of Jesus. I mean, he really likes Jesus. And he knows that Jesus is significant and powerful. And so he says, I want to follow you. I want to inherit eternal life. What must I do? Jesus says, well, the Ten Commandments, how have you done? And he says, oh, I've kept them all. And Jesus said, okay, one other thing. You have a lot of money, I know. There's one thing you lack. Go and give all your money to the poor and come and follow me. Does he really love Jesus? Well, he'd say he loves Jesus. Peter would say he's loving Jesus here. But he's not obeying him. He's not obeying him. The first thing you and I need to recognize about Jesus is not that Jesus is love, but what the Bible continually says about him, that Jesus is Lord. He is Lord. Embrace him as Lord and you'll come to love. But stop thinking that you're doing him good because you say you love him and you speak on his behalf to the world. Do what he says. Obey him. Teach obedience. Tell the world that Jesus is Lord and you will change the world. Stop telling the world that Jesus is love. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is to be obeyed. It's not how you feel about him. Your love is wayward, rising and falling disappearing, coming back, what you need is to know that Jesus is Lord and that he is a Lord who expects obedience. So many people say such nice things about Jesus, such reasonable things about his niceness, his compassion, his grace, his forgiveness, But as you read through the Gospels, it seems to me impossible that these people have actually read about the Jesus described there. The Jesus who says of himself, but when the Son of Man comes in his glory. In other words, he's not here in his glory, but he's coming in his glory. And all the angels with him. In other words, I'm coming back in my glory. The hosts of heaven armed angels host is an army behind me then jesus says he will sit he's speaking of himself in the third person then he will sit on his glorious throne all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left, and then I skip to the end, and he will say to those on his left, away from me, I never knew you. 
Cast them outside where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Do you love this Jesus? Is this the Jesus you worship? Who comes in glory with the hosts of heaven and sits on a throne to judge? Look, Jesus isn't shy in speaking about this. He says quite plainly that there is a connection between obedience and love, right? But what is that connection? Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And if he keeps my word, my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode, dwelling place with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Jesus is claiming authority. He's saying, I am Lord. Obey me. You want to know that you love me? Obey me. He says, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. What is the, the doorway to, to love in our relationship with God? Obedience. Obedience. Not prattling about how we love him and we know him. And Obedience. Simple obedience. If you keep my commandments, Jesus says, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now, I want to end on a note that's, I think, the most incredible one in this passage. And I don't have much time, so I'm going to have to jump to it. And that is what Jesus says in verse 27. Peter's answered from strangers. Jesus says to him, then the sons are exempt. However... So that we do not offend them, go to the sea and throw in a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for you and me. And this is the, the most incredible part of it at all. Once Peter's been rebuked, Jesus says, all right, the rebuke's over. And I want you to know that if you obey me and you love me, you have the same status I have. This coin will pay both of our tax because you are also a son of God. You are also a son of God. You want to be a child of God? You want to know the glory of the Most High? Listen to Jesus, and he brings you under the Father so that you have the same relationship to him with Peter. And the authority of Christ is such that this passage is perhaps the only miracle I'm aware of where it doesn't say what happened doesn't say, and Peter went out and caught the fish, and there was the coin or any of that. It doesn't say it at all. We just know what happened because that's the authority of Jesus. He is Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and the way that it, it stops us short and makes us take account of our thoughts, our actions. Father, give us the power that, that comes from embracing your son as our Lord. Give us the love that comes from obeying him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.